as every week, we're going to have some amazing stuff for you. But the amazing things always come from God's word. And so if you guys could, would you stand with me? We're going to read God's word together. And as Pastor Rod says every week, the, gla- the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. And so we are a church that we read God's word, we interpret God's word, and we apply God's word. And so we're going to do that once again. So I'll read the first verse, and you guys read the second. One day David asked, is there anyone in Saul's family still alive, anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive, but he's crippled in both feet. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. You're lucky I said that one. (laughs) He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Would you pray with me and invite God into this time? So dear God, we thank you that you are in this place. God, that you so desire to speak to us this morning, that you want to meet with us, and Lord, we want to meet with you. Open our eyes that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our hearts to understand all that you have for us from your word this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so it's so good to be with you guys. I'm excited that I get to share with you some things from God's Word today that, um, that speak to me, and I think they're going to speak to you as well. But I'll start with a story because I like to tell stories. Uh, I don't tell lies, just stories. But a couple, a couple months ago, my wife and I had the privilege to go on vacation, and we went to Central America. We were in Guatemala, and we were, uh, were spending some time on this beautiful lake, and there's all these little villages surrounding it. And one day we decided we're going to go to the village of San Antonio, which is known for making this beautiful pottery, and you can go there and you can see them actually producing this pottery. So we decided to, to go to San Antonio. So we commandeered a tuk-tuk, which is like a motorized taxi thing. I think there's a photo, yeah. So um, my wife and I are in this tuk-tuk, which is great fun to begin with, plus the word tuk-tuk is great. And so we're riding down this dusty road in the tuk-tuk, having a great time. We get out to the main square. I start to pay the driver, and instantly I notice there's this woman here, and she's, she's instantly like on us, and she's trying to sell us something, and she's speaking English, and, and I just say, no, you know, we're not interested. And then she says, she kind of switches tactics, and she's like, well, are you, are you here for the pottery? You know, here to see the pottery? Yeah, we're, that's pretty much the only reason come, anyone comes to this little town. And so she's like, okay, it's down that street. Okay, great, awesome. Have a nice day. You stay there. I'm going here. So um, I start, my wife and I start wandering down this street. We don't really know where we're going, but then I see these tourists coming up from this one street, so I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll go down there. And, and I look in my periphery, and the woman is here. She's like, she's like a tick on a dog. She won't leave me alone. She's, she's walking with us, and, you know, she stopped trying to sell us stuff, but she's like, oh, no, it's this way. Let me show you. I'm like, you want to show me down some dark alley and have your friends beat me up or something? You know, so I'm like, I don't know what this woman is doing or why she's following me. Um, and she actually does lead us to this place where they're building the pottery. And so we go in there. It's kind of these worn, all these, all these different rooms. And she's talking to somebody, and I give Jen the look. I'm like, let's get out of here. You know? So we give the woman the slip. We go to a restaurant. We duck in there. We have lunch, and we're like, great. We've got rid of her. And then I come out, and she's there again. She is pursuing us. And so Jen and I are kind of like hiding, and then 
when we don't see her, we jump in another tuk-tuk and we get the heck out of there, right? When somebody's pursuing you, intention makes all the difference, right? If their intention's bad, it's, that's a problem. If it's good, though, we call that romance. When somebody's pursuing you for good, we call that romance. I mean, about 23-ish years ago, when I first met my wife before we were married, to be honest, she's not in here so I can tell you guys this, I didn't think she was all that interested in me. <laughs> I was about ready to, like, okay, I guess, I guess it's not working out. And so she called me one day, and she said, uh, can we hang out together? Can we spend some time together? I'm like, game on. <laughs> when someone's pursuing you and their intentions are good, that's a beautiful thing, right? Question for you guys this morning. Did you know that the God who made the heavens and the earth, he's pursuing you? He is pursuing you and his intentions are very, very good. But some of you guys don't believe that. Some of you don't even believe in God, so why would he be pursuing you? Some of you might think that maybe God is, is pursuing you, but it's not going to be good when he catches up to you because you, you know what you've done, right? If he catches up to you, it's not going to be pretty. Other, others of you, you think, well, God is pursuing other people, but he's not pursuing me. He's pursuing Garrett. He's not pursuing me. And then others of you, you've forgotten all about this divine romance. You've gotten so good at being religious and doing good things and godly things and serving him, and you're doing the work of church and all that, but you've forgotten this divine romance that the God of heaven is pursuing you with his kindness. It's a beautiful story. This morning, we're going to dive into 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we see this amazing story from the life of David. In the story, we're going to see two things. One is that God is pursuing us, and the second thing we're going to see is intentions that are bigger and greater than we could ever imagine. God is pursuing us, and his intentions are great. Before we dive into this story, though, you need to know a little bit of the background, the, the story behind the story, the context. So the story is, it involves King David. Uh, when King David was not King David, he was a 14- or 15-year-old shepherd boy, he was anointed by uh, the prophet Samuel to be king. But he wouldn't be king for many, many years to come. He ended up serving in the courts of Saul. He becomes best friends with Saul's son. Saul was the current king. Becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. They're just best buddies. And then all of a sudden, his dad, Saul, just turns on him and for several years ends up chasing David, trying to kill him. That's nice. Intentions, right? Intentions are important. Um, and so this is all happening. Um, and then eventually... The Israelites have this epic battle with their enemies, the Philistines, and King Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle. Now, when that happens, everybody knows, everybody knew that David was going to be the next king, and they knew what was going to happen next because they expected David to do what every king has ever done. So when, when one dynasty takes over for another, typically what happens is the new king wipes out the family of the old king. This, is, this has happened throughout history. Um, you even think in Jesus' day, King Herod wiped out some of his own family members who he thought might be rivals. If you go into um, medieval times in England, Richard II killed several of his family members who he thought might be rivals. So this is a very common thing for royal, fa royal families to do. So when uh, Jonathan had a son, his son was Mephibosheth, spoiler alert, and um, Mephibosheth's nanny, when she heard the news that King Saul had died in battle, they figured, shoot, David's going to kill all of us. And so she scoops up little Mephibosheth, who's only five years old, and she's running and she's running, and she drops him on the ground, little five-year-old Mephibosheth. 
and he becomes crippled in both of his feet. And he's crippled for the rest of his life because they're running away. So David says this, is there anybody, this has been about 15 or 20 years since David became king. So it's been a while. David's maybe sitting in his palace one day and he thinks, is there anyone in Saul's family left who I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Because Jonathan was his friend. When David said that, he, he said this, he said, he summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. And the king said, hey, is there anybody left from Saul's family? I want to show God's kindness to them. When David said he wanted to show God's kindness to them, everyone who heard that would have known exactly what he said, exactly what he meant. The kind of the hairs on the back of their neck might have stuck up a little bit. It would be actually pretty shocking to hear David say that he wanted to show the kindness of God to Mephibosheth. You see, it wasn't just a nice gesture. David wasn't going to send Mephibosheth a fruit basket and a gift card. David was going to show Mephibosheth something extraordinary. That word kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. Every Jewish person knew that word because that's the word that God so often used to describe himself and how he dealt with his people. Chesed is one of those concepts that's so big and full of meaning that it's really hard to just encapsulate in one word. Think of like, describe to me the last sunset that you saw that was beautiful. You're like, it was red. It was really orange. It was beautiful. And I mean, that doesn't tell me anything about it other than it was red. You, know, you know what I'm saying? You can't, how can you put that in words? Or describe your love for your children. How do you put that in words? I love them a lot, a whole lot. You, you can't do it, right? It's just impossible. Or even, let's take it a, a not, another notch up. Describe your love for your special needs child who requires so much time and care and energy and sacrifice. Nobody else can understand that. How do you put that in words? Hased is one of those words that you can't put into words because it describes who God is, and God is an infinite. In 1535, in fact, Miles Coverdale was translating the Bible, and he invented this word loving kindness because he couldn't describe Hased. It didn't make any sense. Hased appears over 250 times in the Bible. I think 127 of those are in Psalms. And it's been translated in over 14 different ways in millions of different translations. But some of the common translations are this, faithful love, steadfast love, unfailing love, gracious covenant, covenant loyalty, or kindness. You see, when God says the word has said, he's actually saying his name because that's who he is. In Jeremiah 3.12, God declares, I will not cause my anger to fall on you for I am said." merciful, says the Lord. God is mercy. He is faithful love. He is steadfast love. He is the gracious covenant. He is kindness. Hesed is a lot of things. It's covenantal. It's extravagant. It's relational. And it's big. Michael Card, the author and the uh, musician, spent 10 years of his life trying to understand and study this word. Hesed, he wrote this book, probably on the screen in a moment. Um, but he came up with this working definition of hesed. It says this, when the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. When the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. You see, David wasn't just going to send a fruit basket or a check or a greeting card or a Starbucks card. He was going to give Mephibosheth the kindness the said of God, that the one who had the right to expect nothing 
would receive everything. And so David says, who can I show the kindness of God? And everyone's kind of like, you sure? You want to do that to your enemy's son? I don't know about that. It was also interesting that David said that he wanted to show his son for the sake of Jonathan. Before Jonathan had died in battle, remember their best friends, he makes this covenant or pact with David. And Jonathan says this in 1 Samuel 20. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the hased or the kindness of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this hased or this kindness, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. David and Jonathan had made a covenant of hased, a covenant of kindness. A promise to show the set of God or covenant loyalty. This story is a beautiful picture of how God pursues us with his kindness. Like Mephibosheth, we are the enemies of God. Like Mephibosheth, God is pursuing you and me with his great has said. His intentions are very, very good. And because God has made a covenant with us through Jesus, we who had the right to expect nothing get everything. It's good news, right? It's very, very good news. So that's kind of the lens or the frame that we're going we're gonna to look at the rest of the story through. And as we continue the story and we look at Mephibosheth, this picture of God's kindness is going to grow and grow and grow. You guys are going to see even more. It's, it's really good stuff. Check this out. So David says, is there anyone left from Saul's family? So Ziba says, yes, but, but he's crippled in his feet, so he's probably not interested. David says, no, great, no problem. Where does he live? Well, he lives in Machir, the son of, with the son of Amiel, in this place called Lodabar. So here's a profile of Mephibosheth. He's an ex-royal who had lost his family, his inheritance, his status, his health. He was lame in both feet, and he's kind of living with his friend in this backwoods place called Lodabar. To put this in modern perspective, think about uh, this guy. Prince Harry, ex-royal. Say, for, for instance, uh, he breaks up with Megan, he leaves the mansion in Montecito. He gets in a car accident, he's disabled. Now he's living somewhere in Barstow. You know, like that's basically what's going on here. It's like Harry and Barstow. That's Mephibosheth, right? It could happen. He loves to live in California, right? So do you guys remember why Mephibosheth was lame in both feet? You guys remember? What happened to him? He got dropped. He dropped a kid. He was dropped when he was five years old. He was paralyzed. He was crippled in his feet because he was literally dropped. When my daughter was little, I was, she was, I don't know, maybe a year old or something. I was taken to the doctor one day and I had to go up these steps and I'm kind of jogging up the steps, which is always a bad idea. Why did you do that? That's why mothers would not allow this to happen, right? So I'm jogging up the steps with my daughter and I trip. Thankfully, she didn't hit her head on anything. You know, I kind of did this, but I did rip my pants. So, um, <laughs> It sounds terrible, but when you think about it, a lot of us have been dropped in some way as well. Maybe not physically, if you have, that explains some things. But as a child, as a young person, or just maybe somewhere along your journey in your past, maybe in some way you have suffered because of what someone else has done, what someone else has done to you. And the pain and the trauma of that day echoes into today. Things that happened when you were a kid, things that happened along your life, things that happened last year, they echo in today. The pain of that day echoes in to this day. For some kids, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. You were abused as a child, sexually, physically, emotionally. You were abandoned by your parents. How do you recover from something like that? 
and it impacts you to this day. Other of us, others of us, you know, we've never experienced anything like that, but we've been rejected and we've been abandoned along the way. Think about that spouse who cheated on you, who destroyed your life, and they're still actively trying to destroy your life. How do you recover from that? The boss who lied about you and got you fired, the parent who loved you and has died and is no longer here to help you and care for you, the failure to find a spouse, let alone a date. You laugh, but it's, it's heartbreaking, that feeling of rejection. The group of moms who never include you when they go out with their kids and do other activities, you're never on the list. The friends who've moved away and stopped calling, or you're in your elderly years and no one visits you anymore. They're just people that you send a greeting card and check to occasionally. And the pain and the trauma of that day echoes into this day. Some of us have been dropped at church. We have church hurt. Something happened to you at church maybe five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years ago. People in power abused it or they abused you in some way. People gossiped about you. People abandoned you. People pushed you out in some way. And now you come to church, which is great. I'm glad you're here, but you're, you're not really fully engaged again because you can't. The pain of that day has come to this day. You don't trust anybody really. You find fault with everything. You know, the music is too loud. It's too quiet. The speaker is too old. They're too young. They don't have any hair. <laughs> you find fault with everything and you're consumed by bitterness. It's not these people's fault. It's what happened to you 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. The pain and the trauma of that day echo into your life to this day. Well, while some of us have been dropped, all of us have dropped the ball. We've messed up our lives again and again and again. We haven't been dropped, but we've dropped the ball. Those words of anger, it's like, it's like have you ever squeezed out toothpaste and tried to get it back in the tube? Yeah, you have? <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, it never works. It doesn't work. Same things with words of anger. Once they leave your mouth, you can never get them back. And we've dropped the ball again. You think about those images that you look at that you can't stop looking at on your phone. You try, but you can't. They have power over you. You've dropped the ball again. You think about some substances that you've put into your body you, you keep doing it, you can't stop, and you've dropped the ball again. You yell at your kids, you know, for four, it's been four times this morning before you even got to church. And you don't mean to, you love them, but you just, the words come out of your mouth, you get so frustrated, and you've dropped the ball again. Or some of us, we started drinking a little bit more than we should, and again, and again, and again, and we've dropped the ball. Some of you are really good at gossip, about speaking about others, about slander. And you don't want to do it and you feel bad every time you do it, but you just can't contain it. You've dropped the ball again. Some of you guys have made a financial mess of your life because you're chasing after everything that's shiny and new, hoping that it might make you feel alive. And you've dropped the ball again. And the mistakes of that day echo into this day. Mephibosheth's disability makes the picture even a little more clear. 
Because Mephibosheth was completely disconnected from the religious life of Israel. In Exodus 23, it requires all Jewish men had to appear before the Lord three times a year. Unless you're disabled, then you didn't have to appear and you actually weren't invited. Uh, In the Jewish writings of the Mishnah, they talk about this quite a bit. And it's, it's interesting because they say that if a man is lame or blind or sick or aged, and if he cannot go up to Jerusalem on his feet, sounds familiar? He's excluded. Because Mephibosheth was dropped physically, he got dropped spiritually from the religious life of Israel. His physical pain led to spiritual pain. The thing about woundedness is that it so often disconnects us from the life of God. Emotional pain, abuse, the wounds we've suffered from others, or the failure of our own lives can leave us feeling disconnected from the Lord. It's not because he's disconnected us. It's because we've stayed away. Because we feel shame, we stay away. Because we're so angry at what happened to us, we stay away. Because we're, we've been rejected in the past, we stay away. Or we've dropped the ball so many times that we can't bear to come back. And like Mephibosheth, we can become disconnected from the life of God. It's not him disconnecting us, it's us choosing to stay away. Mephibosheth's location also tells us another part of the story. You see, Mephibosheth was staying in this place called Lodabar or Barstow, you know, one of those two. He was, in, he was in Lodabar. And Lodabar means no pasture. And in an in a agricultural society where your wealth depended on, on sheep and goats and cattle, pasture is really important. He lived in a place where there's no pasture. The, kind of the other meaning of that is no speaking or no leading. Kind of the idea is that because there's no grass, There's no shepherd. Because there's no shepherd, there's no speaking. There's no leading. Sometimes because we've been dropped or we've dropped the ball, we can feel like we are living in the place of Lodabar. Like there's no word from the Lord for us. There's no speaking. There's no leading. There's no pasture. There's nothing to sustain us. Because we've been dropped or because we've dropped the ball, we feel like we're in the place. There's no word from the Lord. You feel like you're in a place where life is barren this morning, where there's no word from the Lord, where you don't sense his leading, where life is dry and there's no pasture. The last thing to note about Mephibosheth is his name. Mephibosheth's name means to scatter shame or to break shame. Literally, shame was his name. That would probably be awkward in school, you know. Hey, what's your name? Shame. (laughs) That's a little, it's not the nicest name to name your child. So if you're having a baby, you know, just throw that one out, okay? Pastor Tyler Statton talks about the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, something is wrong with me. Guilt says, sorry, I've made a mistake. Guilt, uh, shame says, sorry, I am a mistake. You guys know what I mean? You ever felt that way? Shame can become part of our identity, unfortunately. Shame could become part of who we are. Let me explain. My cousin is, uh, my, my wife's cousin, James, is a U.S. Marine. This guy is towers. Over, I'm, you think I'm tall? Like, I look like a midget compared to this guy. He's like tall and like a tank. Um, and, you know, he's been in Afghanistan. He's jumped out of helicopters. He's done all kinds of things. I say he's a Marine. He's not currently a Marine, but he's a Marine because you never stop being a Marine, Right. You never stop thinking like a Marine. You never stop viewing the world like a Marine. It's gotten into the core of his identity. Shame could be the same way. It gets into our blood. 
It becomes part of who we are. Because of what others have done to us and because of what we have done or failed to do, there can be this inescapable sense of shame. So take a look at what happens next in the story. Here's Mephibosheth. He's lame in his feet because he's been dropped. His name is shame. He's disconnected from the spiritual life of Israel. And he's in this place where there's no pasture, no speaking, no leading. What in the world is he going to do? What can he do? He's lame. He lives in Lodabar. What the heck is he going to do? He does what we tend to do. He just accepted it. What else is he supposed to do? He can't do anything about it. He just accepts it. The problem is, like Mephibosheth, some of us have accepted things that we really shouldn't accept. We've agreed to things. We've accepted our life as it is, and we really shouldn't do that. We've accepted things that we shouldn't accept. We've accepted brokenness. We've accepted the oppression of shame. We've accepted being disconnected from the life of God and the people of God. We've let shame or anger or fear dominate our lives. If that's you, I've got some really good news because Jesus only ever brings good news. Listen, God refuses to accept what you have accepted for yourself. God refuses to accept what you have accepted for yourself. Listen to what happens next. So David sent for him and he brought him from Machir's home. David went looking for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth wasn't looking for anybody. He just accepted his circumstances. Like David, God refuses to accept what we have accepted for ourselves. He pursues us with his kindness. He comes after us with his love, with his said. One thing I've noticed in the, in the last several years, is it's, it's kind of interesting, it's intriguing, it's a little concerning, is that as a culture, we've embraced philosophies of all kinds. Even in the church, I'm not talking about like you guys are walking around with like a Plato quote on your shirt or, you know, um, you know, you're just talking about Socrates all the time. I'm talking about modern philosophies, but it wouldn't be the philosophies that you'd find in a book. Um, it's there's all these uh, it's it's the, the, the philosophy of the culture. I'm talking about philosophers like you know, we drop names like Jordan Peterson or, you know, Jordan Peterson said this, or um, Brene Brown said this, or that guy on YouTube said this. You know, like we quote these people like it's truth because it sounds good. One of the most pervasive ideas is that, I've heard this many times, I've seen this on social media, and it's no one is coming for you. You guys heard that before? No one is coming for you. There's a, yeah, I guess you, no one is coming for you. You can save yourself. Uh, basically, the idea is that you need to create your own future through your own effort. And maybe there's some truth to that. You know, don't be lazy. I get that. And on paper, this sounds great. And maybe there's some truth to it. Unless you're Mephibosheth, <laughs> no one's coming for you, Mephibosheth. Get up and get after it. Come on, you know, you're in Lodabar. You're lame. You can do that, right? So that sounds good. Sounds true. But when you're stuck, like Mephibosheth, it doesn't really help you. When you're paralyzed with fear, with anger, with anxiety, with shame, with regret, with addiction, and someone says, no one's coming for you, that means there's no hope. Ever. Because you're paralyzed, you can't pick yourself up. I just want to say this morning that philosophy can't save you this morning. <laughs> Positive thinking is not going to help you. No meme is going to rescue your life. You can't even rescue your life. You can't save yourself. Paralyzed people can't save themselves. You know the only person I ever remember who I can think of who was able to tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk was Jesus. 
not a meme, not a philosophy, not myself. The only man who could tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk was Jesus. Only Jesus can set a captive like me free. Only Jesus can deal with my shame, my anger, my regret, my loneliness. Only Jesus has the power to make the paralyzed walk. Only Jesus does. When the voice of despair says, no one is coming for me, Jesus says, I am coming. I am coming. In John 14, 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He is coming. He will save us because God refuses to accept what we have accepted for us. His vision for your life and for mine, it's so much greater. It's so much deeper. It's so much better because he wants to give you his his said. At this point in the story, David and Mephibosheth meet, and David tells him what he's going to do for him. He says, I'm going to do a few things for you, Mephibosheth. Take note. This is going to be good. I'm going to show you my kindness. I'm going to restore the property that belonged to your family, and I'm going to make the servant do all the work for you, so it's going to be easy. And from that day forward, he says, Mephibosheth, you're going to eat here at my table, at the king's table in Jerusalem. It's interesting that in David's day, land was so important. Yet in this story, it's not really the focus. You know, we've been in the book of Joshua for like three years, I think, or something like that. It's been a really long time in the book of Joshua. And it's all about going into the land and, and receiving this land, this inheritance from God. Land is so huge symbolically in the life of Israel. But in the story, it's really not the focus, which is kind of odd when you think about it. So David restores the land to Mephibosheth that would belong to his, grand, his grandfather Saul. He appoints the servant Zeba and his sons to work the land so there will be food. But Mephibosheth never goes back to the land. The land's so important, he didn't go there. What's the deal? It's not that it wasn't appreciated. It just didn't matter that much. Who needs land when you get to be with the king? He stays with David in Jerusalem and eats at the king's table like one of his own. You see, our inheritance isn't in the field. Our inheritance is at the table. Servants work in the field. Sons sit at the table. Servants work at the field. Sons sit at the table. Sometimes... We so often want the field. We want the land. We want the stuff. We want restoration of old things, of the way things used to be. We want relationships back the way they used to be. We want our old job back, our home that we lost to foreclosure, the people we have lost, the money we've lost, the health that we used to have, the identity that we used to have. We want the restoration of old things. And sometimes by God's grace, he gives them to us because he's good. He's faithful. And sometimes by God's grace, he withholds them from us because he's good, because he's faithful. Because our inheritance isn't in the field. It's at the table. Personally, so often, I've, I can think of so many times in my life where I've begged God for things that I used to have. Could I have that job back? Could I have that life back? Could I have my son back? And by God's grace, He's withheld them from me because my inheritance isn't in those things. It's in him. We want old things, yet the Lord would say to us in Isaiah 42, 9, behold, I'm doing a new thing. We beg and we plead, Lord, give me, restore to me the old things. And he says, but behold, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing a new thing in you. In Numbers 18, 20, God 
speaks to the priest and he says, I am your portion. I am your inheritance. We want the restoration of old things, but the new thing God is doing is making himself the new thing. He wants to be our inheritance. He wants to be our portion. Our life is with him and that everything would be, would be needed. We won't be nourished by the field, by the old things. We'll be nourished at the table. In John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The old things can never feed you like Jesus can feed you. The old things that you want restored to you, the relationships, the time, the identity, the job, all of those things, they can never feed you like Jesus can feed you. Our inheritance is in the, in the fields at the table. So this is, this is how our story ends. Here in verse 13, it says this. Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Every day, Mephibosheth ate there at the king's table, like one of his own sons. And on the left, there'd be Absalom, Tamar, some of his other sons and daughters. And there was Mephibosheth. But there was a problem. Mephibosheth was at the king's table, but he was still crippled in both feet. Mephibosheth brought his brokenness to the table. Being at the king's table didn't solve all his problems. He wasn't healed because he was at the king's table. He was lame, but at the king's table. Some Bible commentators, if you read, they'll say, oh yeah, it was such a beautiful picture. Mephibosheth's feet were covered by the, the long flowing tablecloth of God's grace. The problem is that's not how people ate in that time. People sat down on the ground at this low table. Now, actually, Mephibosheth's, Mephibosheth's shame would be on full display. Everyone could see his broken, twisted feet at the table. All, you know, all the king's son, they all kind of look like, uh, you know, they're all good looking and healthy. And then there's Mephibosheth with his messed up feet. At the table of the king, Mephibosheth's shame was on full display. The story reminds me of another story with another table and another king. On the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, he wanted to celebrate Passover with his friends. He's celebrating the Passover. The very night he's going to be betrayed, the next day he'll be crucified. And it says he took a towel and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. He washed the dirt, the filth, the shame from their feet. You see, when we bring our brokenness to the table, Jesus meets us there. When we bring the most broken parts of us to the table, Jesus meets us there. When you come to the king's table, when you bring all your brokenness before him, he meets us there. Could it be that Jesus ministers to us at the table in the very place of our brokenness? So often in scripture, we see God meeting people in the place of their brokenness. I think of Hannah who bore the reproach of not having a child. She so wanted to have a child, and she's in the courtyard of the tabernacle, and she's praying, God, give me a child. God meets her in that place. I think about Leah, who was unloved by her husband, and God remembered her. I think about the woman who's caught in adultery, the ultimate shame, and Jesus met her there. Like Peter, who denied the Lord and wept with regret, Pastor Rod talked about last week, Jesus met him there. For me personally, I grew up in a very awesome family. My, my parents loved me. They treated me well. We had a wonderful family life. But there was this thing where I always felt like nobody was pursuing me. 
I remember this, you know, it's funny. One little thing that somebody says will stick with you for years. The pain of that day comes to this day, right? And I remember coming to church when I was a kid and people wouldn't, the other kids wouldn't say hello. They'd say, where's your brother? <laughs> they didn't say, hey, how, how's it going? We're so glad to see you. Like, where's your brother? And I always felt like nobody was pursuing me. And then I read this story and he's like, I'm pursuing you. I'm pursuing you. Mephibosheth's name meant to shatter shame or to break shame. Jesus has come to be the breaker of your shame. Mephibosheth couldn't do it on his own, but Jesus can. As we come to him, he'll meet us in the place of brokenness. So as we close and the band comes forward, Jesus says this. What about you? Are you broken today? What about you? Are you broken today? Come to the table. He's pursuing you with his said. He refused to accept what you've accepted for yourself. He wants to do new things in your life. He wants to be your inheritance and your portion. Bring your brokenness to him, and he will meet you at the very place of your brokenness. Bring your whole self to him, your shame, your doubts, your anxiety, your brokenness, your hurt, your addiction, your anger, your frustration. Lay it out before the Lord and just say, this is all I got. I want to meet with you. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, our good shepherd, the breaker of shame, is pursuing you with his love, with the chesed of God, that you who have the right to expect nothing might get everything. Others of you, by the grace of God, you're not in the place of brokenness this morning. You've experienced the mercy, the kindness, the chesed of God. Pastor Ross Lester says, if mercy flows to you, it should flow from you. Are you pursuing people with the kindness of God? If you've experienced mercy, let it flow from your life and pursue people with it. Pick up the phone, send a text, chase after people, pursue people with a good intention, with the chesed of God, that they might know that brokenness can be dealt with at the cross. Who is God calling you to pursue with his kindness today? And what would it look like if at Sanctuary Church, we were a church that pursued people with the kindness of God, that we chased after people relentlessly with the chesed of God? What would our church look like? What would our community look like if we did these things? Would you guys pray with me? Dear Father, we thank you that you so loved us, that you made a covenant through Jesus that the world might receive your chesed, your kindness, that you might take all your shame upon us, that you might break it. And Lord, at your table, we look forward to what you want to do. Meet us here, God, we ask in your name. Amen.